No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And uh, starting tonight and throughout the summer, uh, we're going to be not talking about the coronavirus. So for the many, many people who, who told me over the last two and a half months while we were doing the Corona cast that, uh, that they don't listen, they want to hear me do paranormal stuff. Well, you're in luck because we're back in the realm of the paranormal, we're back in the realm of the strange and unusual and esoteric, as I used to call it many times back in the day. We're calling it Banal America's Summer of Strangeness, and it kicks off tonight uh, with a real uh, firework, if you will, uh, an icon, a legend, as I explained at the end of uh, uh, last week's episode or the last show we did. You know, BOA has always held the, the legends of, of this field, of these various fields in high regard. Uh, Jim Mars, Stan Friedman, they were part of the fabric of this show. Brad Steiger was a good friend of Banal of America as well. I, I, I believe that you need to, uh, you know, they say we stand on the shoulders of giants. To be able to talk to the giants is, is always something that I loved having the ability to do as part of Banal of America. So when I was putting my list together here for the Summer of Strangeness, I, I kind of was thinking to myself, I need to sort of recapture that, that Banal of America feel. Like, who, who, is, who is the icon that we can start out the Summer of Strangeness with? And, and I didn't have to think long about it, because I knew right away it had to be Lauren Coleman. Uh, you know, he is the, the granddaddy of cryptozoology. He runs the International Cryptozoology Museum with a fantastic team there, uh, which we'll talk about. And I couldn't tell you how many books he's written. He'll be able to tell you. Yeah, the list is, is voluminous, and so uh, I don't know the total at the moment because it changes, I think, uh, quite a bit. So with all that said, it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome him back to the program, the legendary Lauren Coleman. Thanks for doing this, my friend. Sure. Good to be here, Tim, and uh, I'm glad to be on your list. I, I am living, though. I, I did notice that everybody that you mentioned has passed away. So I get to be on this list of people on your show, but I'm not going to die over the summer, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a fun, always fun to talk to you. I remember some of the early meetings with you in which you interviewed me outside and the wind and yeah. you tried to – monsters down in Massachusetts and all of those things, all the way to Nova Scotia with you. And yes. It's been, it's been lots of fun. Uh, we, we're an international team, actually. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we've had quite the history. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll, we'll kind of sort of get into, I said before we started the show, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about Stan because we hung out with Stan in Nova Scotia, and it's it's been an interesting sort of few years for the esoteric community. Uh, there certainly seems to be this sea change going on. But I want to talk first about, uh, now you've reopened the museum, right? The museum reopened on Monday. Yes, yes. There's uh, people that have been in touch and watching what's going on in Maine, they've noticed that uh, we've had the very low numbers in that disease we're not going to talk about. That's right. But one of the um, things that we've had to watch is we've been under quarantine. It wasn't until July, I mean June 1st, when we were allowed to open with five people at a time. So we've actually opened this week, and we're starting to get a few people in. We've uh, been doing not a great business, but a little business online all through this, in which we've been sending out mail order, autograph books, getting some new books on sea serpents, um, which I've written introductions or things like that. And that's been uh, keeping us in touch with our our, our fan base. But uh, it certainly uh, is hopeful that we'll get things going across the board. Then, the unfortunate thing is everybody else in the Thompson's Point area that we're working with uh, actually are not open yet. Ah, um, okay. And uh, so, uh, it, you know, it's it's just us alone trying to get people in. Ah, it's so not even the not even the brewery or anything. I figured they would uh, have some kind of curbside at least or something like that. Yeah, they have curbside. Oh, but, but it's, yeah, it's not, not the same. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the lines for that brewery. They were. <laughs> Yeah, now the staggering. cars, they they don't let people line up outside anymore. They're all lined up in their cars. But they, they've kind of caught on that they don't just uh, have a launch time that's only a couple hours. They spread it out over three days so that people are getting the the message that they'll be able to get their beer if they just are patient. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But we're, we're open from 11 to 6, seven days a week now. Uh, and we're, you know, starting to get people in. We're also got some ideas in to get to, to make it more exciting. And then July 1st, it should be more people we're allowed to have in than August. And I, I have a prediction that uh, people are so pin up that uh, whereas lots of things usually drop off in Maine in, in uh, the fall, that it's actually going to go right through through till Christmas in which people are going to be pretty excited to get out and about. Yeah, I hope so. It seems like, uh, yeah, I think, I think around Memorial day, people kind of had had enough of uh, everything and we're ready to start moving. And, and so, yeah, you well, everyone hopes that this is the worst is behind us at this point. So. Right. The outdoor concerts that have been canceled for the summer are actually coming back in September to Thompson's point. So that's a, Oh, that's another great. Hope, yeah, that's another hopeful thing about the whole venue. So we're hoping, we're hoping. And then uh, next year, the Children's Museum uh, is moving from downtown to a huge building. They're building right across from us. So there'll probably be a, some spillover traffic back and forth between us and them. Oh, yeah. Children love cryptozoology. I think you're you're the one who kind of clued me into that. Um, yeah, oh, cryptozoology is yeah. big with kids. A real gateway to uh, all of the sciences. I, I learned early on when the museum opened 17 years ago, and 
mothers or fathers would come in and they say, oh, I'm really worried. Johnny's only interested in Bigfoot. Is he going to grow up and ruin his life? (laughs) (laughs) I had to tell them, no, 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 don't worry. Usually, you know, then they become a wildlife biologist or, uh, you know, a linguistic professor or, uh, you know, a baker. (laughs) You You just can't predict what any kid's life is going to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you look at those lists of what kids want to be when they grow up. <laughs> right. uh, Chris Pena wants to know where the museum is. The The International Cryptozoology Museum is in Portland, Maine at Thompson's Point. Uh, you have an address if you want to give that out? It's uh, 4 Thompson's Point Road. All you have to do really is uh, cryptozoology.com. Cryptos, I mean, cryptozoologymuseum.com. They can look on our website, and we have maps. But if you go to Portland, it's a, a little point of land that is uh, right uh, out of the downtown area, and everybody knows where Thompson's Point is. Uh, you just have to say, where do you where do you get your beer? Where do you get your wine? You know, and because we're surrounded by all these neighbors that uh, actually sell different brews of alcohol and whiskey and different things. In fact, whenever we opened up, the the running joke was, we were we going to install a breathalyzer at the door? But, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had to do that. <laughs> um, now, have you, I guess, you know, we don't, we, we, well, we want to talk a little bit about, in a sense, sort of like, the, the current world we live in, in a way, with this pandemic, um, it is interesting. I'm sure you've seen the sort of the the meme, if you will, the, the nature is healing idea. Um, you know, the that, that that all of a sudden, and it happened like I, in a lot of places, like uh, in England, there was like all these goats that came into the, the village, and um, and uh, in in Venice, all the waterways were suddenly cleared up, and and the animals were starting to come back into the waterways. Um, it's interesting in a sense because you know I troll the news all day looking for stuff. Uh, hmm. We didn't necessarily see any uptick or at least any fantastic Bigfoot sightings or anything like that. But then again, the part of the problem is, you, you if you're in your house, you can't really see a Bigfoot. I mean, you could through the window, right? But it's people right. aren't people also well, weren't out looking necessarily. Right. Well, there, there's two parts to that. One, for instance, uh, all of the sightings in the waterways of Venice there was a real breakdown. There was the jellyfish, which was truthful, and there were more jellyfish, and there were sightings of that. But there also was dolphins, and the dolphins was hoaxes and, and Photoshop, and that didn't actually happen. All right. So so a lot of people had a lot of time on their hands. They were creating fakes. They were doing uh, various uh, YouTube, um, you know, hoaxes and stuff like that. And then, then there's the part that you're talking about, uh, it takes two to tangle as far as sightings. You have to have a cryptid out there, and then you also have to uh, be out there to see them. So it takes humans to have sightings, and since most people were on quarantine, even if the creatures had been closer to urban areas or uh, had the possibility of more sightings, um, it what just wasn't happening because yeah. there weren't that many people out there. So now we're getting, you know, some reports and, and things because people are kind of coming out. But uh, And the other part, uh, the, the joke, the meme that really 
I got tired of seeing was the champion of social distancing. Yeah, Big yeah, show. I saw that, yeah. You know, but that was problematic also because the best sightings of Bigfoot are actually family groups. And probably about 25% of all sightings of Bigfoot are not a single male crossing the road, but actually the hikers or the campers that are deeper in the woods and they're seeing groups, usually up to four, uh, Bigfoot. Oh, okay. So, so it's not a, a creature that doesn't want to be alone. It's, it's you know human-like or ape-like and and likes groups of of other Bigfoot around, and is very curious it seems about humans, uh, especially humans with coats on or long underwear or, or different kinds of coverings that they sometimes apparently get confused with with other Bigfoot. So uh, that's, you know, it's just they're probably as curious about us as we are about them. Yeah. Although humans tend to be a little bit more scared of uh, Bigfoot than than probably they are of us. Yeah, that's that's kind of what they always say about all all animals, it seems. Uh, But no, they say it the other way, so yeah. So yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, it's you know I've been talking to you for like 15 years now, on and off uh, over the course of the show. I've known you for that long, and it's I guess what I'm sure you kind of get this question a lot, but uh, uh, I'd like to explore it now. Um, what I guess why do you think this we still haven't had? Like why do you think we're still chasing after this thing? Like well, I know I, I know you know it took long time to prove the ape in, in China. Um so I understand that like these things don't happen overnight, but I guess what do you think is what do you think has prevented this from 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 us getting across that finish line, if you will? Well with regard to if we're talking Bigfoot, bondable snowman, things like that. Right. Yeah. They're very they're very intelligent. Uh and they're very intelligent and uh, for instance, a lot of us during the, the 60s and 70s talked about if there's 10,000 black bear for every one Bigfoot, the chances of someone seeing it, finding a dead body, are phenomenally low. Uh, so that just doesn't happen. And also, what has happened in the last 20 years is there's now a cultural Bigfoot, the most a uh, realistic approach is to look in the places where we think they really are living year-round, and that would be the Pacific Northwest. Yet, because of the television programs and reality TV, everybody thinks they can go out in their backyard and find Bigfoot. <laughs> or they can they can go on a, a six-pack weekend and, you know, camp out and have a Bigfoot encounter. Well, that just doesn't happen. But that is also part of the problem because most of them, you know, 100 years ago and during the Victorian era, when all of the new animals were being found, whenever the mountain gorilla was discovered in Africa, whenever the chimpanzee was discovered, whenever the giant panda was found in Tibet, and all of those kinds of animals, they usually were found at the end of a a well-funded expedition by the zoos and museums of Europe or other countries in Asia so that uh, they knew that they didn't have to go out there and find them right away. It took 60 years to find the mountain gorilla. It took 
60-some years to find the giant panda. Most of the people looking for Sasquatch, Bigfoot, are doing it in about five days. They're not well-funded. The only funding that really comes through is from TV shows, and they usually allow a weekend. Uh, You know, even that show that we all called not finding Bigfoot, (laughs) just finding Bigfoot, a little joke I didn't appreciate because I actually knew those four people and they were trying very hard. Uh, but it, it is something to to notice that those, that even though it was a well-funded show, they usually would only give about a week per location. Yeah. And in a week or even four days, you're not going to find that much. If you noticed over and over again on, with the show Monster Queer, Quest, which I was a consultant with. Loved Monster and, Quest. Yeah, yeah. They would uh, go out and put a, a trail cam out on a tree for one overnight, and they would expect to find something. You just don't do that, uh, you know, with real, real animal capturing and uh, zoo collecting and all of that. It takes them. You got to know the local people. You've got to deal with the animal traders. You've got to figure out that there's animals that are naturally being captured as pets for communities. None of those lines of communication that Ivan Sanderson or uh, sort of the old traditional guys in the 1950s or 1940s, that wasn't being done. That's not being done uh, during this modern time. So the shows like that come and go. And then, of course, you've got some ridiculous shows, uh, like one, in fact, uh, one that we all know about, uh, that they would call themselves, you know, Monsters of the Mountains or something. I won't say the real name. But <laughs> yeah. It was all fictionalized. It was all made up. And they, every week their motto was that they would build a trap to capture the animal, and it was more a show about how to build a giant trap. There was another show that came on, and it was about uh, creatures being underground and Almost immediately, they showed people with rifles shooting them off in caves. It's just something you don't do in gun safety. So, um, thankfully, we're through that era, and now we're coming out of it. And we'll have to see if some of the shows like, uh, you know, that we see showing up on National Geographic or History or Destination America get back to, to some real monster hunting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds to me like you'd need a show almost where the show is like one long expedition or something like that, you know. And even then, how long, you know, who knows how long you might need. So it's hard to gauge. And I think that that just doesn't fit with the model of of TV nowadays. It's kind of like it has to be sensational. It has to have quick results. It has to be exciting. You have to have a a camera that shows footage that's kind of green and in the dark. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and there's certain motifs and, and tropes and everything that everybody's expecting now, really in some ways based on a lot of the ghost shows and the para, uh, para psychological shows. Yeah, yeah, it but seems it, that's the case, yeah. But it doesn't work for creatures because uh, it takes a long time. I've seen a couple shows that have, uh, you know, ran for two or three episodes and then would get uh, canceled. And their problem was that they would bring a guy on that uh, had been looking for, you know, a clouded leopard 
for six months and he brought his footage on and he finally got something on a trail cam and he felt that was success. But on the program, it wasn't exciting enough. And uh, 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 Bernard Heuvelman said there's two major components of cryptozoology, patience and passion. And you have to have both of those to really look for the long term. I once said in, uh, there was some guy that was very interested in being a cryptozoologist and wrote articles for uh, San Francisco Chronicle and Outside Magazine and made a re- really big splash in the field. And about six months later, he got out of it. And, and we had a kind of, a, that was the early days of the internet. And I said, you know, Cryptozoology very much is like building the pyramids. It takes a long time, and you have to have patience. Yeah. I'm sorry you're frustrated, and it wasn't satisfying and exciting enough for you, but probably the field is better off without you. Well, that's for sure. You got you got to have patience in this field, uh, or yeah, you got to have patience, or sort of have a sort of begrudging. I guess that is patience, sort of acceptance that this is going to take a long time. And you may not, you may not ever get the answer, you know. Um, right. I think everybody, once you're in this long enough, you have to sort of, it's like a come to Jesus moment or something. You have to have this conversation with yourself where you're like, okay, uh, you know, because when I got into this, uh, like, I guess I was like 17 years ago, I picked up uh, Rule by Secrecy and checked it out and got into the whole scene. Um, I thought, I thought they were, I, I thought they were. <laughs> I certainly let's put it this way. I certainly didn't think I'd be sitting here in 2020, kind of at the same point I was then, um, as far as uh, any of these things breaking through. But uh, we, we, uh, stranger things have happened. The Cubs won the World Series, so any, anything anything's possible. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I I do have a little bit more time in the field. I actually, this is a my 60th anniversary, six zero. Congratulations. Being, yeah, I know. It's thanks, pretty, pretty impressive. Being in the field, and I, I can kind of see the progression. And I mean, I would have never guessed it towards the end of my time in this that I would have founded a museum that it is, would have been had become a, a federal nonprofit, that it was able to collect so many artifacts from all over the world and end up on, you know, the 15 uh, weirdest museums in the world or the you know the 20 places that you need to uh, travel to before you die in the United States and stuff like that so it's been very satisfying uh, to see the the progress over the 20 years Um, I mean over the last 20 years for the museum but also the the 60 years of people that have come and gone and people that have made some major contributions that uh they could have never guessed, uh, you know, in the beginning that they would have been so important to the field themselves. Right, right, absolutely. And and uh, one thing that is really gratifying as a fan of cryptozoology, because um, I, I was like, I was into Bigfoot. When I, I remember when I was in, like, elementary school, I did, a, a you know, one of those book report type things on Bigfoot. My mom, because every mom helps, every mom and dad <laughs> helps their kid. With these kind of things, so my mom helped me and made a huge, made like a, I guess you would call it a life-size Bigfoot. It was like eight feet tall, and of course I was probably like three feet tall because I was only in like third grade or whatever. I don't know how I don't know how tall a third grader is, um, <laughs> but 
but about you can, as big as a rank pin deck. Yeah, I I wish somebody took a picture of that. I'd like to have a picture of little 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 banal uh, with the life size Bigfoot. But yeah, um, what's gratifying, I guess, is the and I know you've seen this is is just how how Bigfoot has become this pop culture icon. When I even when I first got into this again, you know, 15 so years ago, it was to me it would be unheard of that like towns were adopting Bigfoot, um, and they were having you they would have these festivals and Bigfoot would be in all these commercials and stuff. It was kind of like it was kind of like back in the day. Bigfoot was <laughs> how Bigfoot is, where if you caught sight of Bigfoot on something on TV, it was pretty rare. Now it's like you you can't turn around. It's ironic in a sense. You can't turn around without seeing Bigfoot. In some kind of, of pop culture-y, uh, you know, setting, when before that would be like unheard of almost. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in 1960, when I started getting into this, I, I kept scrapbooks or little notebooks and files, and I would clip out, you know, every time that a newspaper or something would have an ad, and that was rare. I mean, uh, and then now. You know, like you say, they they have a car insurance that has you know a Bigfoot on it. it calls himself Daryl, and uh, yeah, yeah, I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and so they're just it's become uh, quite prevalent and quite common. So much so that uh, actually you cannot say that people don't know what Bigfoot is, and and a lot of uh, corporations and CEOs have been challenged on. Bigfoot not being important, and it's kind of an old story. But you go into the, you know, the the board of directors room, and you say, "What is that?" And you ask a bunch of kids, "What is Bigfoot?" And everyone can do a drawing of what they think Bigfoot is like. It's yeah. not something that is uh, unknown. It's so common you can uh, sell products. Yeah, I think, and I also think some. Somewhere, some of the people in marketing realize that uh, you know nobody has a trademark on Bigfoot, so you can just use it at will. No one's going to sue yeah. you for for using the big. No one owns the likeness of Bigfoot, so it's yeah. uh, it's pretty, well, it's pretty know, funny. D- Disney a few years ago tried to copyright the Loch Ness monster, the name, and they just what? couldn't get away with it. Yeah, they tried to do that. So, um, I mean, one thing. Uh, I, re- I I coined the word crypto tourism uh, a few years ago, and it very much is important to local communities to figure out what their uh, cryptid is, and then try to uh, capture that image on T-shirts, cups, and souvenirs, and then eventually move towards uh, a festival or a local historical society or a museum. Now, whether it's Lake Tessie out in Lake Tahoe or, or you know, Sasquatch and Harrison Hot Springs or, or these different places around the country that actually uh, are having a hard time with their local economy, then they discover they've got a local monster or Bigfoot, and all of a sudden uh, it becomes, uh, I mean, like it happened with Mothman. Uh, Mothman just really came into its own in 2001. Uh, in 2002 with the movie, and then a couple years later, I actually went down and consulted with the Chamber of Commerce and said, you really need to uh, take some of these dead storefronts in your riverfront, turn it into a museum, and then think about an annual festival 
and they did all of that, and they get 20,000 people a year on the middle of September, and it's become a real boost to a dying uh, city. So it works. It really works for them. Yeah, for sure. It's like they learn from the Roswell thing, and uh, it's like you got to be a little different from Roswell, too. So, yeah, the Mothman especially, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Roswell used to get a, a million people a year. I wonder if that's still going on, though. I'm not sure. Well, they won't be. They're not having anything this year, so we'll see if uh, <laughs> right. next year it's, it's any better. Um, I think in a couple of years it'll be like the 75th, I think, or the 85th. I don't know. I can't do the math, but it'll be a rounded number. So we'll see if uh, in 2022. So well, uh, that I might try to make my way out there. Finally, I've never been. Have you ever been to Roswell? No, no. And it would have been. Uh, you mean 1947? So it's got to be something ending in seven. It, no, in 22. In 2022, it'll be something in five. So let me <laughs> let me do the things. But uh, so you've never been to Roswell? No, no. I've been through uh, some of the cities around there. I've been to, uh, you know, like. Uh, at, nope, not to Roswell. Yeah, it'll be the go. 75th uh, in a couple of years. So oh, that would, 75th. Yeah. That would be the good time. A good time to go out there. A guy, a guy, my brother went to uh, went to. Uh, Went to law school with. He's a judge in Roswell, so I gotta. I guess I have to mind my p's and q's if I make it out there. <laughs> now, some good friends of mine, uh, and I, you know these guys, Josh Cutchin and and um, and Tim Renner. I always want to call him Jeremy Renner, like the actor. Uh, Josh Cutchin and Tim Renner. They they wrote a book. I haven't uh, I haven't had time to read it yet. I'm in deep. I'm knee deep in the middle of an amazing Andre the Giant biography, so I can't. I can't put that down yet, so, but I have the book, Where the Footprints End. Um, and I, I, so I can't necessarily speak to the overall thesis of the book because I, I feel like that wouldn't do them justice. But, but my general understanding, in a sense, sort of asks the question or the possibility uh, that Bigfoot is more of like a nature spirit, if you will. Have you examined – I'm sure over in your 60 years this question has come up uh, – you know, what do you what do you think of that sort of possibility? Maybe not necessarily. I don't know if you would call that paranormal or more like folkloric, uh, you know, in the fairy realm, if you will. Right. What was what's the name of their book? Where the footprints end. Oh, I think I've seen parts of it. I haven't had time to it read it. It just came out like a month ago, so uh, yeah, you know. trying trying to finish up on a mermaid book, uh, mermaid's book that Mark Hall uh, left. When he died, but um, one of the uh, any of these uh, spirit world, uh, Sasquatch, Bigfoot kind of things, I I really put it in the realm of um, Ivan Sanderson once told me never try to explain one unknown with another unknown, and I think that's the the pitfalls that I uh, try to avoid whenever you can't really understand what spirits are or ghosts or uh, fairies, which is a possibility existing in the ether or into another dimension or wherever you want to talk about it. Yeah. Then to uh, take Bigfoot, which is something that's really very unknown, um, but we're trying to uh, trying to find physical evidence for. And then people get frustrated and they absolutely try to come up with these other world 
explanations. It just doesn't work for me. Uh, I really try to keep close to the zoology, anthropology of these creatures. I figure it's fine. If people want to do that, fine, but I'm not going to get behind them and uh, endorse it, recommend it, um, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it really, uh, I think, is a distraction to really finding the eventual solution to the physical Bigfoot. Yeah. Uh, but I understand what uh, go that direction. It really oftentimes comes out of a lot of frustration. So what better way to uh, feel good about uh, your explanation than to create an explanation that has no way to have proof for it. Yeah. Fairies and, and ghosts and things like that. So, um, you know, I mean, all power to them, but uh, it's certainly something that I don't like to go in the direction. I mean, I've, I've done that. If anybody's read my book with Jerry Clark in 1975 and 78. Right, you explored the paranormal Bigfoot idea, yeah. Yeah, I've I've explored the Jungian psychological, you know, projection of the collective unconscious. I've explored all of that and came away very unsatisfied and very, uh, um, you know, kind of upset that we got distracted for a couple years doing that. And it is interesting to see that Jerry Clark came out of our association there and he went off into being a nuts and bolts uh, ufologist and I uh, committed myself to a flesh and blood uh, cryptozoologist. Yeah, there you go. Um, I figured I would just ask and again, uh, I haven't had a chance to read the book so I didn't really feel like we could, you know, I'll, I'll explore it with those guys down the line, I'm sure. So um, sure. it's an interesting thought experiment. I just didn't know if you, if you were... Uh, 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 up to speed on that. Now, uh, Jim Vujovic in the chat made an interesting observation. He says he was watching one of those paranormal video shows, and uh, they, they were following some uh, footprints through the snow that looked like Bigfoot, and they, they looked like they were walking a tightrope. It was sort of a, more of a singular file uh, set of prints, if you will, uh, through the snow. Is that is that common with Bigfoot, he wants to know? Is that uh, is that how they, how they walk, it seems? Well, uh... That seems to be pretty common. In fact, uh, there is some correlation. If you start looking at um, human tracks, you'll notice that actually females tend to walk in a straighter line than males. And uh, there may be some correlation with the female Bigfoot that are out walking around that have those uh, lines, you know, a straight line through the snow. Yeah. Uh, so that could be a part of the gender differential there. Uh, the other thing is it's uh, indicative of speed. Uh, sometimes you'll notice that big footprints that are widely spaced out, that are all over the map, uh, the Bigfoot may be running versus... Uh, uh, creeping along, tracking some small rodent or some, you know, something for supper. Yeah. So it could be there uh, that too. But yeah, I've I've seen the the straight line of tracks, and that's certainly common. I wonder where he, uh, the person, well, the the video but, was taken from. I'm not sure. He's in the thing, so if he uh, if he can remember, uh, he can uh, give us a shout out. Now sure. the the big the big story last year. Uh, it was it, it was kind of like I mean I didn't 
Uh, it was confirmation in a sense, I thought, but there was the DNA, the environmental DNA study of Loch Ness. I thought that was really interesting um, because it certainly last, seemed. Last year? To, yeah. Last year? Was there a last year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was an interesting, um, interesting situation. The DNA, and I actually uh, got involved in that. Uh, I um, got to go to uh, New York City, and Adrian Shine was there, and Shine and I were on that uh, show together, and I got to meet and hang out with him. So that was lots of fun, and so that was uh, the actual conclusion, not to give spoilers away for anybody that hasn't seen the documentary on TV, which was pretty straightforward. Uh, the actual DNA, they said that they thought it, uh, what was uh, anomalous in it was actually large eels. Right. There may be uh, reports of large eels in there. Of course, the other thing that a lot of people didn't hear is they said there is a lot that we probably missed so there there could be other animals dna in the lock like uh, large whales or you know prehistoric whales or a beluga whale there could be uh, unknown species of seals but they didn't get those even though they looked at different places in the lock there was large areas of the lock that they get, didn't get any sample for and they said that they could have missed uh, many, many different animals. But the eels was interesting because a lot of people had not really thought through uh, all of the eels. There wasn't that much um, uh, really recognition of that high a population of eels in Loch Ness. So that was the big surprise out of the whole um, testing. Right. They found so many, uh, so much eel DNA. Was the sort of right. yeah that was the interesting takeaway from that and like I said it served sort of as confirmation I mean I don't know uh, I, I I did meet one person actually at the event uh, at the event in Thompson's Point uh, a couple of years ago uh, who who still believed in the plesiosaur theory but as far as I can tell that's generally well maybe you can tell me uh, is 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 it I, I'm under the impression that people that not too many people still hang on to the plesiosaur concept, but you're obviously way more tuned into the crypto world, so am I, am I mistaken? Well, I think it's a real breakdown um, as far as countries. Those people in England uh, who are really pro-Loch Ness are also oftentimes pro-Plesiosaur. Interesting. They still have an uh, image in their heads of a creature with a long neck with flippers and everything like that. Most Americans and Canadians are in the school of this is a, a large ancient whale that is, um, you know, long and serpentine, or it's a large unknown long-necked seal, uh, which a lot of Europeans and Americans uh, tend to uh, consider the most acceptable. Uh, but most uh, individuals in the world don't really consider the plesiosaurus theory uh, the most valid anymore. It's just, uh, for one thing, we know that the long-necked uh, Loftus photograph has pretty much been debunked, and not, not so much by those two guys with the deathbed confession and all of that, but from the very beginning, 
the doctor, the surgeon who took those pictures uh, probably took a picture of a diving uh, a diving bird or some kind of uh, the tail of an otter going down. And he never, ever said that it was a monster. Most of the sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, people report that they see something that looks like a giant overturned boat, kind of like the back of a whale. Ah. And that seems to be the considered, uh, um, you know, recommended model for what the Loch Ness Monster looks like, not a long-necked uh, creature of any kind. Uh, so that's a, it's just one of those images that people have in their head and it's on posters and it's on, you know, signs for the Loch Ness Monster, but it really is not what uh, most people that have studied the Loch Ness Monster uh, consider valid. And, in fact, Champ, uh, Champ is, you know, from the, the Lake Champlain yeah. photograph, is kind of like a little bit like that, but most of the people talk about the Lake Champlain Monster as really long, and thin, like a, a giant serpentine creature. Uh, but most of them, we know, uh, both most lock and lake monsters are not reptiles because they're seen during the winter. And they also, it's a, a little secret that we have in the field, which I've re- written about quite a bit, and nobody you know, outside the field really uh, considers it. But if you actually think about the movement, of these creatures in the lakes, they go up and down, up and down in the water. Yeah. So you sometimes then get the the curved um, motion and several um, curls uh, and hoops in the water. Well, we know that reptiles and fish swim side to side, and mammals go up and down, up and down. Ah. Whales and seals go up and down, and that's what these sea serpents, which are not sea serpents, and lake monsters, the, the real movement they have. So they're mammals. They're all mammals, and uh, or they may be eels that have that kind of movement because eels can actually um, swim on the side of their body and make their um, bodies look like uh, coiled animals. Interesting. Uh, Jim Vujovic says the show that he saw that clip on was paranormal caught on camera, and uh, the incident was in Russia. There were some 14-year-old kids uh, following some prints. Oh, that's a hoax. Oh, well, there you go, Jim. That's a hoax. So. Yeah, that, <laughs> if, if, those, if that's the, the footage I think it is, it's been proven those teenagers in Russia, you know, they, they had their moment, and that for about three or four months, people were all excited, and then they found out that the kids had all made it up to get on TV. Oh, man. That's the worst. I hate when that kind of stuff happens. Um, now, uh, we went, this question here we were just talking about gave rise to an idea that I wanted to ask you about. It's, it's sort of like in, a little inside baseball, but that's – I mean, the people listening to this show know that's where I like to go with a lot of this stuff. So, um the, there's, I, no, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I've seen people, I guess, uh, I guess, what are your thoughts on sort of this, how some monsters, that's the word that made me think of it, like Mothman and, and now the dog, uh, you know, the bipedal canine cryptids, that's what uh, people call them. Um, I guess, what are your thoughts on sort of the idea of how, 
cryptozoology has this kind of like periphery ring around it that where where these sort of monsters kind of get lumped in with it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the fringe creatures. Right, I mean, right, right. Well, you know, my mind tends to think even before there was an internet and, and desktops where we had to put our our files in, uh, I mean, our uh, our uh, images and documents in files. I, I thought that way anyway. And I've always thought in terms of cryptozoology and the cryptids, there's a core of what I call the celebrity cryptids. Um, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, sea serpents, uh, the real hardcore celebrity cryptids to get all of the major publicity. Uh, most of the books are written about them, and most people in the media that don't know anything about zoology are very excited by the core celebrity cryptids. Right. Those, those are the ones, despite all the publicity, despite all of the money that's been thrown their way, are probably going to have the hardest time to be discovered because when you think about it, science now has such a high standard uh, with regard to what it will take to prove that Bigfoot exists. It'll actually have to be something like a body thrown at the feet of a, uh, you know, the Smithsonian Institute for people to really consider that as an acceptable, verified creature. Yeah. Then there's another um, file category of creatures around them, like a Rang Pindek in Sumatra, or, yeah. you know, some of the larger animals that have good biologics with them, uh, whether it's uh, the aquatic rhinos that are being uh, discussed in Africa that nobody really talks about or hears about. Interesting. Uh, I've never heard of this. What, just, let's pause for a minute. What are these what are aquatic rhinos? Are they like, what, they live in the water? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, ah. And they look they look like a rhino, but, uh, and it becomes part of the Mokelia Mabembe. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, a lot of the Mokelia Mabembe, people talk about it as a dinosaur that's still in the swamps, but there's another category of some of those sightings that tend to look like uh, rhinos or maybe even aquatic elephants that are right on the verge of being discovered. Wow. Uh, so uh, there's a little expeditions going out trying to find those. And then you go into New Guinea uh, and people are looking for the thylacine. That's something that doesn't get a lot of publicity, but that's probably one of those ones that will be discovered. Uh, Orang Pindek, a short little ape-like creature in Indonesia, I think it's right on the edge of being discovered. So there's those that don't get as much publicity, aren't the celebrity cryptids, that actually have a better chance of being discovered and really rocking anthropology, rocking uh, to the foundation, some zoology. Yeah. Uh, and, and very exciting. And, and you you see some of that happening with some of the fossil finds like Homo forensius and uh, these small ape-like creatures that are maybe a few, you know, 10,000, 20,000 years old that yeah. in, uh, 
the Philippines and Indonesia that are related to the current reports of Mbubba Gogo or the Rangpindek or these other little sightings of proto-pygmies around the world. Um, not the leprechauns yet, although we're getting close. But, <laughs> but uh, So some of those are exciting. Then you get further out uh, and you have uh, things like Mothman that you're talking right, about, right. Which, which actually are a fringe creature until you bring them back a little bit. Uh, my friend Mark Hall, the late Mark Hall, did a lot of, he, he would drive all the way, he lives in Minnesota, he would drive all the way to Ohio and uh, West Virginia, and he'd dig through the newspapers in those areas. And he found that uh, in the 1920s, in the 1800s, there were reports of large owl-like creatures. He would, he would jokingly but seriously call them big hoot <laughs> that there was not Bigfoot there or not Mossman, uh, not even Thunderbirds, but what he called Big Hoot. It <laughs> seemed to be real reports of large owls that people would regionalize and uh, take out of context, out of the broader cultural and historic context. And so you had 1966 to 1967 people seeing Mothman and forgetting that in that area they'd seen them for over 100 years and they called them different things like flying heads or, uh, you know, the large owl or something like that. And so those um, those could be very important to cryptozoology and not so fringe and marginalized like some people have put them. And the same goes for dogmen, which sometimes, and I've talked to Linda Godfrey about this, Sometimes I think dogman uh, reports are nothing more than misidentified Bigfoot yeah. that are leaning leaning over roadkill, eating them, and people come upon them and are shocked uh, when these creatures get up and run off. Uh, but then they they make them they make them very regional, like the Bray Road, where it becomes the beast of Bray Road, and yeah. and it becomes a local folkloric animal that uh, becomes a local werewolf tale, uh, and and then it becomes fringe, and it becomes almost like a a ghost story. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's very very confusing. Uh, you know, the melon heads in some areas uh, in Connecticut, for yeah. instance, or or some of these creatures that become so. Uh, localize uh, that people uh, don't uh, coordinate them with other tales from other areas. Right, right. That that not necessarily it's not necessarily the same case in a way, but sort of the naming convention is similar to the big cat thing, where every time you know there's certain regions of England where it's like the beast of whatever or, or, or something right. like that. Well, like in uh, North Carolina, their Black Panther reports are always called Santer. And it's a local name that, you know, the locals down there, they see a big black panther. They can't explain it. They know that it's local and around, but it's just a santer to them. Huh. Um, uh, and actually, there's there's more black panther reports in the United States than there are Bigfoot reports. But it's become so common that people almost take it for granted that they feel like, well, what's the big deal? It's a Black Panther. We know they exist around here. So uh, they don't understand it's really part of cryptozoology. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, an interesting thing I noticed, in a sense, because uh, as you know, I, uh, I already mentioned this, but you know, I troll the news all the, all the time, so I'm keeping an eye on the news all the time. Um, and every year, there's you know five, six, seven videos come out um, of of Nessie and of Bigfoot, not together, obviously. <laughs> That'd be great. I, I want to see that video, but. Uh, <laughs> This, it's not unlike UFOs and ghosts, where it's like this. You're, you're you're sure to get a certain number of videos every year. I think it's interesting. I'm wondering why this is the case that you really don't see that with Thunderbirds. Um, you know, I can't recall. Uh, you know, I'm sure people. I mean, if you go on YouTube, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that, that people are posting stuff, but at the same time, it's like nothing seems to break through. Um, to where I end up seeing it, or all the people, other people who are also running paranormal news sites. So it's not like, you know, sometimes I miss a story and other site finds it. And uh, so it's not like there are many of us looking for news. And so, uh, but you don't see Thunderbird videos uh, very often, if ever. So I guess what's the, what do you think that's all about? Well, there aren't that many. I mean, there's uh, the John Huffer um, video that happened in the 70s. A lot of people think it's, uh, uh, you know, turkey vultures, but it, it is a large bird along the Kickapoo Creek where the, the you know, the, the little kid got picked up and carried across his yard, so it was in the same area. The, the thing that I discovered um, really early on in my investigations is that, believe it or not, people do not look up. They uh, most human beings going through the woods look down or they look ahead, but they don't notice what's going up. And I actually did an experiment uh, in um, in about nine in 2009 where I tracked uh, the people going through the museum and noticed uh, and wrote down every time I had a a bobcat. Uh, a mounted bobcat that I put very, very high on the wall. And I tracked who looked up to uh, that bobcat. And it was interesting. Uh, in the space of, uh, you know, five months, only three individuals looked up at that and asked me usually, what what is that? And all three were pregnant women. Huh. And it was and then I started reading about some of the fossil finds with Australopithecines in which it got uh, they were attacked by leopards they thought and nobody human beings they felt and some of the early apes were not conditioned to look up for enemies or look up for danger. Right. And I wonder uh you know if if you're a bird watcher, you're looking all around, you're listening for birds, but most people don't look up for the predator birds, for the birds of prey. They usually try to hear their calls and then look up. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if there's something almost on a genetic level with human beings where we don't tend to think about, you know, filming upwards even you, you know, you probably know within the UFO field, uh, it's got to have a, a flash of light or right, noise yeah, yeah. or something that 
attracts the attention of the human beings. And then, and actually, if you look at what's going on in the Chicago area, with some of the reports of quote unquote Mothman, um, that file of Mothman reports in the Chicago area contains reports of airplanes that are misidentified, kites, uh, crows, all kinds of different anomalous phenomena that may not be, you know, anything close to a mothman. Uh, and some of them are just misidentifications. But there's sort of a, it's almost a fad now. Can you uh, count up to 70, the different reports of mothmen in the Chicago area? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as I said, if there's that many mothmen in that area, we do know um, that there are many C- CTV cameras and security cameras. Why don't we have any film? Uh, you know, just you know, why don't we have the police involved in uh, looking at all those cameras to see if these creatures are so visible? Because some of the reports are people saying that they see these creatures in trees at, uh, in major urban areas, and yet yeah. they're not seeing any photographs. Exactly. That's kind of what I. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. it connects in a sense to yeah what I was talking about. It's like everybody has a yeah. cell phone, so they're always spotting UFOs and and Bigfoot and not always, but these are the things you can count on every year. Uh, you know, Loch Ness monster, various sea creatures and stuff, but very very rarely uh, do I see yeah, any, I must, any anything. Like I, that I do have to in throw in my my point about YouTube. The the creation of YouTube has been the detriment of Bigfoot films. Absolutely. um, Probably 95% of the Bigfoot films that are amateur films of Bigfoot on YouTube are hoaxes, are jokes, people trying to have a laugh, um, and it's really not great. I mean, and and remember, it was only a few years ago that a guy uh, got killed on a highway in Montana when he got drunk, he told a person, a friend of his, here, take my camera, my, you know, my cell phone camera, and take a picture of me crossing this highway. Oh, Jesus. And act, acting like a Bigfoot. And he got hit by two cars. <laughs> oh, my God. Driven by teenage girls who are going to have to live with the fact that they killed a, a drunken man trying to pose for Bigfoot. As Bigfoot. And, uh, Jesus. That's really terrible, terrible for those kids. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, that is yeah. awful. Well, terrible I didn't even hear that guys, story. Too. That's just ridiculous. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's a surprise with many of us that nobody's got shot in the woods yet because there are people that have, uh, you know, that, uh, you've probably heard the story during Star Wars whenever uh, – Chewbacca was taken to, uh, I mean, the guy that acted as Chewbacca was yeah. taken to the woods for some filming. They had to uh, surround him with a security. They were all dressed in orange because they didn't want him to be shot as Bigfoot when he was in the woods. <laughs> we got to spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Now, somebody here, uh, Chris Spinio in the chat room wants to know, uh, what about raptor sightings? Um, now, we know about the famous photograph. People have all heard about that TV show and the picture, and they're holding the, 
the Raptor. But uh, what about Genuine? Any any sort of uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I guess you could say you've heard of these types of reports before, right? Raptor. Yeah. Raptor. Raptor. Yeah. Do they have a? Do they have any dates? Any location? No, no, no. He just says people have reported seeing a raptor where he lives out in uh, New Mexico, and he wants to know if you've ever heard of that. I've heard of, uh, you know, there's lots of different um, uh, people in Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, saying that they, in some desert sightings, they've seen raptors and, you know, take pictures. And I really haven't seen good pictures of raptors. I've yeah. heard about them being taken, uh, but they really... It's kind of like the seems to be from the same people that are uh, saying that they uh, actually have uh, pterodactyls that they've taken pictures of, you know, and uh, the re reopen, you know, that's kind of yeah. I think yeah, that might be what he means. Isn't a raptor like yeah. a thing on the ground? Isn't a ra- <laughs> yeah, the raptors are the. I mean, it's like Jurassic Park. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well. I guess yeah, I guess he says that people have seen them there. I, I've never. Yeah, yeah. It's the first there, for me. There have been sightings okay. in the, uh, you know, like the Valley of Guanji or something. Right. <laughs> it's, I've heard about them, but that's about as far as it goes. It's like, it seems to be like a local legend in which we never can see the evidence. Yeah, he says in Navajo Nation, where this is where they they saw it. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, there's a, the Skinwalkers too, and the the weird people. Uh, a lot of Hopi and Navajo, Dini, uh legends of those. Mm-hmm. So the raptor part, I hadn't heard that much from the native peoples. Yeah. Um, let me see. Now, he also, I'll we'll knock this other question out to you. He, he, uh, I'll give you a shorter version, but just disappearing footprints. That, that seems, that's part of sort of the lore, I guess, in a way of Bigfoot, where the you know, the people will follow some tracks, or they'll only find a few tracks, and it's like, well, where where are these tracks going? You know, and and that that's given rise to a lot of the speculation, the paranormal Bigfoot speculation. So, I mean, what what uh, is that? Is that a normal thing? Do these really disappear like that, or is that just sort of a misconception? Or, or you know, how do you how do you reconcile that? What do you think is causing that? Yeah, I've heard this question a lot because a lot of people say, well. You know the the footprints they they go along for a while and then they disappear. disappear. So yeah. they must have been taken up into a UFO or they're a, <laughs> uh, a a ghost-like creature that disappears. But all you have to do is really track normal animals, track known animals, and you'll see that animals are very good uh, at jumping onto rocks, to jumping over to the creek beds. And then going down the creek, yeah, uh, it's part of their survival to actually make their tracks disappear. I mean, they're not getting a brush and covering them up, or uh, you know, sweeping them away, yeah, yeah, or actually disappearing on a UFO. They're actually it's just a, a a technique in which bears and foxes and mountain lions tend to do that quite well, so that they aren't tracked by other predators. And humans. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because I was thinking of that, too, where it's like, if you, eat, you know, I'll see rabbit prints out in my yard or something after the snow. And it's like, you, you can follow them for a little while, but eventually the track, you know, it goes into a bush and you never really find it again. So it's, right, not, right. you know, these animals, uh, they, know what they're, they know what they're doing. So Yeah, they don't want to be caught. 
they don't want to be eaten. Exactly, exactly. Um, let me see what else I had here on the agenda. Well, I did want to talk to you, pivot a little bit to sort of the more uh, stranger things in a sense, because you and I, we talk a lot on Twitter about the uh, the creepy clowns. Do you think we'll see yeah. a return of the creepy clowns uh, later this year? I don't know now. I'm having my doubts, but uh, with the election year, sort of the four-year anniversary of the big the big uh, flap, if you will, of 2016. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, I'm on. I'm on the watch for him. I guess I'll put it that way. What do you think? Uh, I I thought so last year, but there's been so many things happen. I mean, uh, the big the big uh, wave was in 1981. Then there was you know incidental little reports. Then in uh, 2016, of course, as I've uh, as I tried to analyze it, there was uh, a real return to sightings of first phantom clowns, in which kids were seeing uh, clowns at the edge of forests, and they were being attracted in. And then we had uh, what I classify as uh, quite different stalking clowns, in which people would dress up as clowns and then chase people across bridges or out of woods or yeah, threatening clowns. You know, things like that. And this was at the same time that uh, Trump, of course, was portrayed by many major media outlets as a clown. Um, and everybody thought he was a joke. Everybody thought he was sort of funny and entertaining. And now we have four years later, and not too many people would say that other in a very sarcastic way, Trump is a clown. He's seen as much more uh, sarcastic and mean-spirited and a whole bunch of other things right, right. That, that we don't get, need to get into. But I, I thought that if the clowns would come back, it would be in, in conjunction with the election. But now with the, uh, the Nova coronavirus and uh, uh, the George Floyd demonstrations that so many uh, events have come into play that I don't think people are really in the mood have for too it. much. Yeah, they they don't have too much tolerance for yeah clown yeah. reports. Um, so I mean, I've said uh, I did write a little column, a little blog, posting about there have been a kind of an uptick in uh, the plague doctors. Um, Right, we you talked know. about that on Twitter, yeah. Yeah, that somebody, you know, that these are all uh, in the category of the stalking clowns. People are dressing up as plague doctors. I don't think they're really phantoms. I don't, I think they really exist, but people are just uh, thinking that's uh, uh, kind of a gothy joke or something. I don't know, but. Uh, right, right. And, but it's disappeared too, and there are just not that many. Um, a plague doctor sighting. So <laughs> I know. I'm, really... <laughs> I'm just laughing at the at the sort of <laughs> the strangeness of it all. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really. I mean, it, we do. It seems like it's real quick until the election, but it's really a long time in terms of how fast the media has been moving. So I think there's room enough for something, you know, strange and. After all, it is 2020, and yeah. who can have predicted anything that's happened this year? So we could have something 
very bizarre happened, uh, happened, you know, everybody thinks they know who's going to run and who's going to be on election. Well, I just don't know anything anymore. Um, I, other than I, I have been pretty right with the Fayette factor. So, uh, and a lot of Fordian thought has been uh, placed in that in terms of uh, strange things happening in Fayettevilles and Fayette squares and Lafayette squares. So, uh, I yeah. look to that as still being in the in the mix, and that includes Bigfoot sightings and and phantom clown sightings and and people being hurt and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, and actually, we're talking to each other on uh, as a lunar eclipse is going on. So, who knows what's going to happen today? Yeah, yeah, it's really strange. And yeah, the way the way you kind of laid that out there, I, I definitely agree. Where it's like the the tenor of the world right now is not – you shouldn't be running around in a clown outfit right now. No, no. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't. So I don't think – yeah, I don't think people have really the tolerance for that that kind of thing. Um, you know, if it, if it is an uptick, it will be around, I think, September, October anyway because that's, that's sort of the Halloween season. We'll see. Right. Uh, you know, and, what, and if you really want to be scared, that... Lauren, uh, Halloween's on a Saturday night full moon. So. Oh, well, that's great. Well, yeah. That's my, uh, my wedding, wedding anniversary, anniversary too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, flipping back to something you said earlier, I, I think what is uh, something we can't really avoid is a lot of people are dying because of, you know, uh, what's in the air, so to speak. Yeah, the pandemic. But, but yes. But part of I didn't know we wanted to say that. It doesn't. No, no, no. It's just, <laughs> no. It's just, we, we don't. We won't get fined or anything. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but what I, of course, you know, as, as you know, I, I write a lot of obituaries, and I've noticed, as you said earlier, there's a whole kind of the middle, uh, the godfathers of some of this um, cryptozoology and study of Bigfoot, study of Russian snowman are dying, and uh, it's a big year for death, you know, with uh, a lot of people dying from the coronavirus. But also, in general, there seems to be an age going on where we had, you know, Bender Nago and, um, you know, Dmitry, a Russian, uh, just died yeah. first. And so we're seeing a lot of uh, individuals that have been very important to the field uh, pass away some of them from coronavirus, some of them from old age and stress. And and that's what I think we'll look back on this year and say, this was a great die-off. This was a great die-off of many people that were important in the 50s and 60s yeah. to the, the Fordian field and the cryptozoology and maybe even uh, the ufology field. And so every year I, of course, look to... June 24th is a date in which uh, some people, uh, you know, do pass away. And so I'm uh, I'm gearing up for that. I think that, uh, you know, we already lost Stan, as we were going to talk about. And yeah, yeah. Stan was a very important person to, uh, to uh, pass away. And uh, you and I got to spend some time with him. And that was uh, quite, quite a privilege for me. Uh, to, uh, since he was an American that moved to Canada, and uh, 
<laughs> he was, uh, he, yeah, he, he was ahead of us. He figured it out. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, when we went to Nova Scotia, Stan actually didn't have a car, so I got to be his chauffeur and took him to lunch and oh, nice. got all got all this special time with him in which he didn't talk about UFOs. He talked about his family, uh, and I felt very privileged to uh, hear some of his stories about how close he was and how he found his, his second wife and and different things like that. Yeah. So, uh, and, of course, Paul uh, Kimbrell is his cousin. Or, nephew, I mean, yeah, nephew. Nephew, nephew. And so that was great to have them in the same uh, venue uh, there and talk to all of them about that. Yeah, that was a great uh, weekend up in Halifax. Uh, well, it was outside of Halifax, Liverpool. That's where it was, Liverpool. Yeah, right, right. yeah, that was a good time. Yeah, it definitely seems like uh, you know we talked about Stan. You made that joke at the beginning. I didn't mean to lump you in with. Uh, it's just that we've interviewed so many of these titans that have passed away in recent years, and you know you talk about like Stan, um, Jim Mars, Brad Steiger, Art Bell. It's there's a lot of. It's really just sort of an interesting. Um, there's a whole bunch of other people whose names escape me, like Tracy Twyman. That was a different case, but still. Um, oh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. It's like just, oh, yeah. we've lost a lot of uh, a lot of big time, you know, the, the real the real icons uh, in the last few years. It's very. It feels like it's sort of a generational shift in a, in a sense. Yeah. You know, hope yeah. that uh, you know. You hope that uh, the things can carry on. The interesting sort of challenge, in a way, too. I think for all these fields and maybe for people breaking in is where it's like a lot of these folks, the pioneers, they, they put, they put these things on the map. Um, so they, they named these things. They, they sort of were put the various creatures, if you will, or various UFO cases or various conspiracies, stuff like that. So I think it's hard for someone breaking in necessarily, uh, to have that kind of impact. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to look at it that way. Uh, I mean, uh, I've noticed, uh, for instance, um, we both know Seth Breedlove. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's he's made his name for himself in the last five years. Yeah, he's doing a great job. These indie documentaries. But if you look at what they're, they're, they're very important in terms of capturing cases from the 70s. Uh, and he's actually interviewing people right before they're dying. And yet, what what cases are happening in the 90s and the 2000s that people will think are as important as those ones from the 60s and 70s? And so you're you're bringing up a a good point. You know, are there are there cases that are being named today as uh, uh, you know as uh, the Heller or whatever it's called? Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, is that a case that's fiction or is it fact or uh you know there's a whole debate are people angry at the Newkirks because they're making a name for themselves or they're making names, you know what I mean? So you can see some of the, the sort of the the infighting that is happens right before your eyes that uh, that happened to John Green and and Bob Titmus and Renee DeHinden and Tom uh, Slick, all of those people got in. Peter Byrne, they all hated each other. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and they 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 would join expedition, then they would 
yell at each other, then they'd leave the expedition. And yet we look at them now, and they were like the godfathers or the the four horsemen of Big Fittery or whatever. Yeah. And they're they're put on pedestals. And yet uh, what's happening today in ufology or monster hunting or whatever, because of the Internet, everybody talks about the infighting or they talk about people cheating each other or, you know, infringing on somebody's territory or their special case. In fact, like with the uh, the Chicago Mothman, one of the criticisms that a lot of us uh, talk about are uh, there's no case names. There's no names of the eyewitnesses for others to check because there's a certain individual that is saying, these are only my cases and nobody else can investigate them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to see how territorial it is right now. So uh, it, it's interesting. It'll be, uh, it needs a little more time so that what's happening now can be historic as opposed to contemporary. Yeah. Well, I saw a little bit of that just here in Massachusetts. It always amused me. The, uh, there was a lot of sort of, uh, there was a lot of battling over who, who was the, who was the, the local Bermuda, uh, Bridgewater Triangle guru. And yeah. I was always like, oh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You want to, you want to talk to me? And I was like, you always got that from like everybody. So they always, yeah. everyone fancied themselves the preeminent uh, <laughs> Bridgewater Triangle expert. So. Right, and oftentimes they forget that I coined the name. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> they are all fighting over uh, the pudge wedgies. Who who owns the pudge wedgies? <laughs> <laughs> But Pukwudgies have gotten pretty popular in recent years too. I think uh, I think the Ewokian resemblance has helped their their appeal. But uh, I've seen seen more about Pukwudgies uh, I, I than should, I recall. Uh, I should share a special story that you're part of. Uh, as uh, people that come to the museum know, that I, I keep all of the different ales and beers and wines that have different cryptid names. And you uh, came and donated uh, a Pukwudgie. Beer, I think it was, or ale. Yes, I And uh, one of the characteristics of the Pachwudgies that uh, everybody is very careful about is that they actually take the individuals to cliffs and push them off. And here's Tim giving me a a can of Pachwudgie beer uh, up on our mezzanine, and all of a sudden, it's some way, none of us really knew how it happened, it went over the edge and crashed to the floor and spewed in a million different, uh, you know, yeah, alcoholic ways. Yeah. And so I've kept the can, which is all crushed to bits, but it, <laughs> nice. it, it, it perfectly illustrates what the Pukwudgie could do to you. Exactly, exactly. Oh, the old Pukwudgie, man. Oh. I, well, uh, I may try and make it up to the museum. I got a week off in a couple of weeks, so I'll let you know if I can. And we were talking about going up to Maine. Are are any restaurants open yet, or are they uh, or are they all closed up? No, there's lots of curbside service, but in fact, Portland has actually uh, blocked off several streets so that there's now outside restaurants. It's kind of like Paris. Uh, really? Lots of yeah, lots of restaurants have all of their seating outside. 
and it's it's turning into a whole new way of looking at the town. It's quite cool. Interesting. Now you've moved that up to my you've moved that up my list because, like I said, I'll have a week off uh, in like two weeks, so I may have to go up there and check this out and stop by the museum again. Yeah, just to double check the weather. I mean, we've had we're in drought season. There hasn't been any rain in days, but check before you come up and make sure it's a a night you can spend on uh you know the street eating out and drinking whatever there you go um now you talk a lot about on twitter the the crypto cubrology i believe that's that's how you say it right so and it, it kind of connects to the Fayetteville stuff you were talking about earlier so it seems like you have a really you're really interested in this i mean i see you tweet a lot about it so i guess talk a little bit about about this it's an extension really of the twilight language stuff but i mean just talk about why this has kind of captured your ima- imagination so much captured your attention so much in the last uh you know it seems I, I don't know it seems like you're tweeting more about it lately if you will last few years oh it's 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 an interesting hashtag because uh stanley kubrick i think was a genius filmmaker and uh uh there's certain uh, the people that do the crypto Kubrickology or whatever, they've really clicked on the number um, two, three, seven from The Shining. Yeah. Uh, as as popping up in different places, uh, and so uh, I noticed the numbers. I noticed the connections, and I think uh, a lot of us were certainly interested in waiting and um, waiting for Kurt Douglas to die, which took forever, of course, 102 years old. Uh, but he was in Spartacus, which was really one of the earliest uh, important uh, Stanley Kubrick films. Yeah. And, and if you look at the Stanley Kubrick films, they really are all about Twilight language, all the way up to um, Eyes know, Wide Shut. Uh, Eyes Wide Shut, which I think really looks at uh, the power of the secret societies and and Twilight language in a real way. So uh, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the Twilight language, Fayette, uh, as a name, and some of these other power names like Watts and Watson and um, uh, things like that. Yeah. Just intrigue me, and early on, uh, talking <laughs> to some of these these authors that wrote uh, uh, Weird America and... Um, yeah, you know, the Pan book, the Rebirth of Pan. Yeah, uh, really pointed out certain things, and you know, there's a whole group of filmmakers that call themselves Mandate Thirty Three. Oh yeah, my buddies. Uh, yeah, yeah, your buddies. Uh, the hill and the hole, or the hole and the hill. <laughs> the hill and the hole. Come on, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're an important actor in that film, along with Adam. Uh, Go right, Ree. Right. That's right, and you as well. You're in the movie too. I forgot all. Yeah, forgot I to even mention that we were all co-stars. Yeah. I haven't seen the new uh, new version, which there's this uh, after credits uh, cameo that I'm in. So I have to watch that. I I saw the version where I was actually in the film, but it really didn't work. So they they put me in the the spoiler. You know the. That's the Easter egg part. That's. You know. Yeah, the Easter egg part. So that's cool. That's cool. I'd like to see that. But I thought I thought you did a really good job being really weird and, <laughs> and yet, yet down to earth. And Adam, of course, 
Adam was scary. I mean, he was. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was scary in the movie. Yeah, he played a he played a good he played a good villain there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he he also was your boss in the in the movie, so that was. Right. I don't know if I told you the story. Yeah, but when we were filming it, he was like, it took him because I've hung out with him before, we're friends, obviously. So, uh, you know, while we were making the scene, he it kept he kept kind of messing with his head because he was like, why is why is Tim so why is Tim so mad at this guy who just came into this truck? He got all like discombobulated. So it's kind of funny. Uh, so maybe he's a character <laughs> actor. He was just trying to get in character. <laughs> that's very that's very possible. That's very possible. Now, why do you? I I mean, it's all speculation, but I mean, this is kind of the fun part. We talk about this fade fade factor. I guess, what do you think? What do you think might be behind that? Is it some, you know, I don't, I don't even know. What do you, what, do you have any idea? Well, fae, fae in and of itself is, uh, you know, French for fairy. Right, right. Enchantment. So it has that kind of uh, undertone of, of some name magic where it, actually the name could give a bit of harmonic uh, magic to any incident. The other part, though, is that, uh, Lafayette himself was a very powerful person in terms of the American Revolution and the Freemasons. He was uh, he was one of the uh, you know Washington and all of these guys were Freemasons and yeah. they they seemed to really uh, uh, mark on on the land uh, and gave some naming to the land uh, in a Masonic way and a lot of people. Uh, I, I wrote about this very early on in, uh, in, in um, you know, Fate magazine and Forty and Times and and in uh, Mysterious America. How actually a lot of people just get in their car, they drive down the streets, and they totally ignore the names of the streets, the squares, the the cities that they go through, and how they seem to all be interconnected in uh, very important ways and and so that's why I started looking at some of these demonstrations yeah and seeing how the word lafayette keeps popping up you know and uh, a lot of for instance on the news today there was a lot about a uh, a man of my age being pushed down and bleeding from the ear and all of that right. and that happened and that happened uh on the anniversary of Lafayette coming to Buffalo and that square being renamed to Lafayette. Oh, weird. Uh, Yeah, Niagara Square and Lafayette Square are within three blocks of each other, and that's where the demonstrations were happening. And, you know, not to get into the demonstrations and not to even talk about the politics of the demonstrations either side, but it's... My point is where these things are happening is what we need to pay attention to. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And they have some kind of symbolism. Uh, and, I mean, I don't really see myself as psychic, but I see the ability to see patterns and to point out possibilities based upon some of these names. And so, um, and it, it is interesting that the the number one uh, demonstration that people are talking about all week happened in Lafayette Square where, you know, President Trump 
walked through Lafayette Square. Right, right, yeah, that was. And the, they yeah. had to clear it out, and he had to hold up the Bible in front of St. John's Church. So there's all of those kinds of things. Uh, and if we get into uh, you know, ufology and why St. John's Day and St. John's Eve on uh, June 24th is so important, it all wraps into the twilight language. Yeah. So it's 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 curious. It's you know head scratching. I'm not saying I I have any answers or anything. It's just a it's sort of a, a huge chess game uh, that I I play. And it, I get to uh, look through the news all the time too. I mean, I look for the Bigfoot and the Sea Serpent reports too, but uh, the Lafayette factor keeps popping up too. Interesting, yeah, it's very interesting. You want it, 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 yeah. I think it's one of those things you never can really put your finger on why, why these things happen. It's like some kind of name magic, in a sense, for lack yeah, of a I mean, better term. Like Dealey Plaza. Why is Dealey Plaza so important? Why was Dealey Plaza the first Masonic temple built in Texas? Why is the triple overpass with the Trinity River with the grassy knoll? I mean, all of these associations happen so quickly whenever you start looking at the Trinity site where they did the atomic bomb. and You know, it just goes on and on. It's an amazing rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> I'm not saying anybody else should do do it like I do, but it, it just it is connecting the dots in a very bizarre way. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's certainly interesting, and it's uh, you can almost keep an eye on yeah, keep an eye on things to see where flashpoints could occur, if you will. Right, but, right. Uh, and it is interesting how many. Uh, anomalous incidents, uh, you know, Freudian events, uh, Bigfoot sightings to hook up with this stuff without uh, any kind of uh, manipulation being done. It just happens. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, down, she's listening all the way down in Australia, so I always give uh, preference to the, to the uh, international callers. Um she wants to know, do you think this Twilight language is paranormal or anthropological? Well, that's interesting. Uh, people can label it really any way they want. It's it's linguistic. It's anthropological. Um, I don't like the use of the word paranormal because paranormal doesn't explain anything to me. Right, it just right. means it's beyond normal. It's yeah, yeah. Beside normal, it's all of that. Uh, it's certainly the twilight language seems to be there. It seems to be pretty obvious once you start looking into it. And I'm not saying that by identifying anything, you're explaining it. I'm just identifying. It. I'm, I'm really very much a traditional Fordian, and it's it's about the facts. It's about the data. Uh, I figure getting the data, collecting the data, assembling it, trying to look for patterns uh, is what I'm very good at, and I'll do that without getting bogged down in explanations because I find when you start talking to somebody and they they want to argue with you about whether or not Bigfoot is Paranthropus 
or a ghost creature or a third dimensional creature or gigantopithecus, it doesn't help me at all get any closer to Bigfoot. So That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Because if, yeah. We don't know the answer, so it's really just sort of going in circles of uh, of debate, if you will. So Right. So, you know, if if I listen to Jim Brandon and he identifies certain names that we should look out for, I have that list of names in front of my mind all the time, and I say, okay. And like I had a friend uh, who used to write a column on uh, Weird News, uh, Chuck, I forget his last name right now, but he he identified Wayne as a middle name of criminals, you know, whenever they identify. Yeah. You know John Wayne Gacy and right, stuff that's like the that. Right, that's yeah. Right, and uh, he just had long, long list of all of these criminals, and I was thinking, uh, I've had had kids. I would never name a kid with a middle name of Wayne. That's sort of like a mark of Satan or something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, is, is that a coincidence? Is coincidence or is that? Uh, is that enemy action? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's a woman who wrote a book. I should get her on the show about uh, names and sort of the power of names. Um, I think she – I heard her uh, on Coast to Coast. She said uh, – she. I don't know if it was her or a teacher she worked with, but, like, she was able to look at the list of names and know how to place them at the – you know, in the seating chart without ever having the kids even come in to school because just by the names over the years she had figured out – she could sense something from the names. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, i got to look that lady up. I should have her on the show. Yeah. Um, let me see what else I had here. Uh, let me see. Lost my train of thought there a minute. Um, so we did the update on the museum. Well, I'm really interested in the uh, thylacine. That's kind of my one of my favorites lately. Is there any – I guess, is there anything – are there any other animals, are there any creatures, let's put it this way, that you think don't get enough attention? That's kind of my bailiwick in a way. Like, I, I champion the thylacine. I know it's sort of on the, it's on the cusp of one of the more well-known, but is there one in particular you really like that doesn't get the attention it deserves, you think? Well, uh, you know, I think there's probably about 200 around the world that are, are neglected. There's, yeah. There's there's all kinds of turtles and uh, you know reports. I, th- I think um, if we look at the oceans, for instance, the animals that, that are neglected the most and are discovered the fastest are the beaked whales. There's lots of sightings, there are cryptid sightings of large uh, dolphin-like creatures, beaked whales, and we have to wait until they're beached and die for them to be verified, and that yeah. does happen. And I've uh, heard from different uh, marine scientists that there's something like 20 different species that are waiting in a row to be uh, journal articles to be published to verify that they, you know, they have a name and they have a discovery. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of thing, uh, I, I really am hopeful that, some kind of sea monster, not a sea serpent, but it looks like a sea serpent, will be discovered in the next 25 years. And I think there are large serpentine creatures out there 
uh, being seen all the time. That uh, there's also sightings of uh, not not you know the megalodon or anything, but large sharks that are reported occasionally, and they're mystery sharks. Right. Uh, and so those will be uh, they need more attention. Most people, including myself, are interested in land animals because we know that uh, uh, there's more a chance of running into them. Uh, for instance, there's probably another large cat to be discovered in Peru or the Andes down in South America. Interesting. There may be uh, some kind of uh, large anthropoid in South America, uh, like the, the uh, apes in Green Hill. Articles you might have read from the 20s. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's something like that around that doesn't get enough attention. It's oftentimes thought as nothing more than, um, you know, native folklore or something. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, David Oren from uh, the American Museum of Natural History, he's an ornithologist, but he actually went to South America in the 70s and interviewed lots of native people. And he thought that there was probably a medium-sized ground sloth that is yet to be discovered. Oh, wow. That that Sanderson, in his book, uh, The Bond of a Snowman, Legend Come to Life, really talked about the Mapaguari as a ape-like creature. And so you have this division uh, with people who are interested in those South American reports. Is it a ground sloth or is it a giant ape? Uh, and so that's that's something that uh, I think in some ways got caught up in the debate and people forgot to, hey, let's just go look for them. Somewhere. Right, right. Yeah, that sounds so, amazing. Yeah, yeah, that would be pretty amazing because they actually, we know that the medium-sized ground floss were uh, contemporary with humans and that they were found in, you know, the remains were found in caves and it looks like... Uh, Humans uh, had native peoples had uh, corralled them in the cave and and uh, kept them there for a yeah. while and then then they died out and everybody thinks the ground sloths are all extinct. So maybe they aren't. Maybe they're they've uh, adapted for being deeper in the rainforest. Those ground sloths are amazing. I don't know if uh, yeah. I just I, I, yeah, I'm sure you've seen the uh, you know the bones and stuff from them. They were huge. I'm talking about the you know the ancient ones that were like giant. Oh yeah. They're stunning. Yeah, they're stunning. Yeah, at the American Museum of Natural History, there's quite a collection there. and They do have the medium-sized uh, ones with the bones, too. And that. Oh, nice. Uh, they, they would be amazing to discover because, uh, I mean, the unfortunate thing is, of course, all of the lumbering that's going on in the Amazon, uh, there is always the fear that some of these animals may become extinct right. before we discover them. Yeah. Um, now, I have a feeling you've probably encountered this question before, but we're going to run through it again because um, I'm interested in it. <laughs> I didn't ask it to you before. So I guess let's let's have a hypothetical scenario here. Uh, so let's say somebody gets a living Bigfoot. They capture it somehow. What What happens, do you think, to that Bigfoot then? Well, that has been a question debated by a lot of people because uh, Grover Krantz used to say, you know, um, once we discover Bigfoot, the amateurs better get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
his feeling was that the government and the university will take over and uh, discover, you know, if it's an amateur or a hunter or, you know, a housewife or whatever. Yeah. They better get out of the way because science is going to come down hard and fast. Probably we'll put it in a reserve, uh, you know, some kind of area of a natural park, uh, well-guarded, which they'll film it a lot. They'll take blood samples. uh, And then there'll be a great debate, should it be released or not. Um, uh, Mark Hall used to call this telebiology where uh, the days of going out and shooting things and having the body to verify them are, are gone. That's yeah. a very Victorian model. And you will you see this uh, going on with a lot of uh, birds in different areas of the world and monkeys in Africa, where all you need nowadays is a video uh, and scientists, some kind of DNA sample, uh, usually from... Uh, a wet market, so to speak, yeah, uh, in which people have parts of the body. But I think with Bigfoot, it's going to be a big difference uh, because um, a lot of people will squawk about it being put in a zoo. But I think there'll be a, it'll be like Jurassic Park in some ways. Yeah, you know, some of those scenes with uh, they'll be they'll be kept in a wild area that is surrounded by fences. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I think that's the only way that people will believe it, uh, because there's going to be a lot of uh, scientists and other people coming forth saying, this is a hoax. Let's make sure there's not a person underneath that costume and and different things like that. So it'll need the verification, and then it'll go into the next step of legislation, uh, preserves. Supposedly in China already – very close to Wuhan, uh, in that whole province, uh, there's lots of reports of Yaren, and parts of the government have already uh, created a sanctuary for the Yaren. So they're expecting to discover it and then already protect it. Yeah, I think I heard uh, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, whereas you don't see anything like that happen in the United States. You had, you know, in the 70s, uh, one little county in washington state uh, as a it was a, a publicity stunt they did a local ordinance saying it was uh, against the law to shoot sasquatch yeah but that was really more of a joke than a real law but i think that if you go into this uh, period of a university and scientists and professors and all of that you are going to then come to the legal part where the the legislatures and lawyers will get involved. And, of course, there's going to be the person that uh, discovered it who's going to sue everybody to get his million dollars that he's fantasized that he's going to become rich because he discovered Bigfoot. So Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting legal question because it's like I would assume that I have asserting that they could just come, let's say, like some guy in Oregon found it, right? They got the capture Bigfoot. But uh, in this hypothetical scenario, the the government would be able to they would be able to swoop in and take the take the creature away from the person. Uh, you know, whether that's fair or not is is up to is up to people to decide. I don't think it's very fair, but but at the same time, maybe that's for the best. Maybe we don't want maybe maybe 
maybe this guy can't contain a, a, a Bigfoot, so, so it's probably best to get it uh, out of this guy's garage or whatever. So it's an interesting conundrum in a sense where would they – I guess they would probably – like the fishing game would probably have some way, some legal way of coming and taking it away from the guy. Maybe, maybe. I think I think part of the problem is a, a lot of people have, uh, you know, they've only already had uh, intellectual constructs that Bigfoot is endangered, but it can't be endangered unless it's verified. Right. And so a lot of people are thinking the government can step in because it's an endangered species and take it away from them, but that can't happen. You know, it's sort of backwards. Right. It's got right. to be verified, and then then it can be uh, made uh, as an endangered species. So, so it'll be uh, interesting. I, I think um, some of the case law may be based upon what happens with uh, First Peoples in Canada and, and Native Americans with regard to, um, you know, um, bringing back the the burial items of Native Americans and reburying them, like what happened with the Kennewick men. Yeah. Um, in which a lot of tribal groups will petition that Bigfoot is really a member of their tribe or it's one of their forgotten brothers or, or sisters and that there will be a lot of conundrums about that in which people will get all mixed up in what they're talking about, but it'll it'll be interesting if it happens. Uh, um, certainly, we all are hoping that something like that will occur. A lot of us have said, uh, and I've said for a long time, if if Bigfoot is discovered, it's probably going to happen when a lumber truck right hits it on hits on a, on a road, and we will have the final dead body. Yeah, exactly. We, yeah. We, we won't have to go through the whole business about what do we do with this live animal. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But the more intriguing scenario to explore is the is the living animal, uh, you know, scenario, which I found really interesting how you said, I can envision it now, this debate unfolding about once, once okay, so once they've got it and they've documented it and studied it, at some point it's like, how, okay, how long are they going to keep it? On this reserve, and I could see, yeah, there would be a, an interesting cultural debate about whether whether or not they should let it go. Or I also think I, they would probably have to do something relatively quickly because I think that that would cause a flood of people to go looking for them uh, with renewed effort. Yeah, it would be like a Bigfoot gold rush. I mean, I I think it would be crazy it would just be absolutely crazy i mean you saw in uh, michigan in 1966 and 1965 where you had uh, bigfoot like reports in the southern part of the state and you'd have the towns flooded with 50 people 150 people on the roads right. at night looking for those bigfoot and can you imagine if if uh, you know on cnn special report uh Bigfoot discovered, and they make the mistake of having a drone overhead and showing where they're at. Oh, God, you'd have, yeah. You'd have tons of people going out there. Yeah. It's also, it just seems like this is the way life is, but I always have believed that, like, once they get one Bigfoot, whether a truck hits it or somebody captures it, 
somehow, for some reason, even though it's eluded us for so long, I feel like all of a sudden they'll get a second one within a year or something like that. And then it'll be kind of somehow, it'll be, I don't know why, but it'll be like, okay, now it's real in the minds of people, so somehow now it's more real in real life or something. I don't know. That's just sort of a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a late late end of the week sort of uh, musing, but yeah, that's always something no, I've always I, kind of felt. I, I think if you look at the discovery of animals, that it's sort of become two-day wonders. People are excited for a little while, and then they forget. Right. Uh, I mean, everybody's expecting with any of the celebrity cryptids that it'll be a big deal, but I I actually think that humans are in a stage in this period of time that we're in existence where everything is very brief and that they move along. I mean, yeah. uh, whenever the gorillas were discovered, there was a little hullabaloo and then uh, they became part of the zoos and part of the the traveling shows across the West. And, and uh, I mean, how many people were that excited by Megamouth, which was discovered you know, in the in the eighties yeah. of uh, Hawaii, not at all, not at all. But that was a a very big discovery, uh, and uh, even the the new orangutan that was discovered in Indonesia, nobody's been excited about that. But that's a a whole new species of of great ape that was discovered. So uh, you know, it it is kind of intriguing. What does it take anymore to excite human beings? Well, it's interesting because I do – I cover a lot of sort of those stories in a sense where it's like um, – I, I mean, I realize this is why it is. But so, a lot of times, like, something will be discovered. It will be like a new species, but it will be a new – it will be a new species because of, like, two or three characteristics that are a little bit different from the other one. But they're generally yeah. the same – you know, it's pretty much like the same thing in a sense. You know what I mean? So it, I think at, at least <laughs> at least I have. I don't know about the rest of the world, but it's like I almost have become a little jaded to the, um, to when there are these new species found. Because then you look at it and you're like, oh, that's just a yeah, – I don't know. That's just a bat, but but its tail curls backwards as opposed to the other. You know what I'm saying? It's like that kind of thing, unless they're really yeah. shockingly different. Yeah, different color phases, different DNA or – you know, a new paper's written, and, uh, you know, that this leopard isn't just one leopard. There's three species because we did DNA analysis. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And it really will have to be a whole, either a rediscovered animal that has been extinct for a long time that's really unique, or a really unique, like the coelacanth. Yeah, exactly. The coelacanth was a very big deal in 1938. Um and then, of course, in 1998, when they rediscovered, I mean, they discovered a whole different species of coelacanth in Indonesia, that was a big deal. But once again, it was a big deal for a couple of days, and most people don't realize what a tremendously big deal it really was. Yeah. Um, now, I sent you a thing, uh, if you want to laugh later, uh you were talking about the town that passed the thing in the 70s to protect the Bigfoot. They, uh, a town in California tried to do that earlier this year. And uh, if you, I don't know if you like the show Parks and Recreation or just like small town humor, oh, but right. yeah. the uh, it's uh, the town board had and everything's filmed for like public access. So this is on YouTube. The town filmed. Uh, they they had the, the board of supervisors meeting, and for probably like 15 minutes they debated 
whether or not they should be uh, passing a law to protect Bigfoot. And it got really heated. It was really an interesting glimpse into this little world uh, of the, the small-town politics arguing about whether or not to protect Bigfoot. So, yeah, I just sent you the link to that uh, okay, on Facebook. Fun. Check it out. I, I I wrote a pretty long thing, so if it's time to watch the debate, you can at least uh, <laughs> read my recap because I loved it so much. I thought it was great. Um, now, we're, we're heading towards the end here. So the museum is open, and folks can come and check that out. Let's give them the hours again and the details, uh, the website and the address and everything. Cryptozoologymuseum.com. It's the International Cryptozoology Museum, and it's in Thompson's Point in Portland, Maine. We're open seven days a week this summer, maybe even into the fall, but right now it's seven days a week, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. We close our doors at 5.30, but then if you're already in the museum, of course, you can stay for another half an hour. Yeah. And I want to answer your question about my books. Right. Because it's one that totally confuses people. Mm -hmm. I've I've written about 35 books. And by that, I mean I wrote them or co-authored them, so I'm the main author. But in addition, I'm a contributor. I've written introductions. I've written chapters. I've written sections of books afterwards. Uh, and I'm up to 103 books oh, wow. that, I've, that I've been associated with. So, uh, And then, of course... Lots of columns, 6,000 columns, lots of blogs and all of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, of course, I'm five books behind. So. Oh, wow. (laughs) I need need to get – it's been quite a year with so many things. I've had to uh, put a lot of energy into keeping the museum alive. So uh, Understandable, yeah. It's a nonprofit museum that needs donation, so it's – I've been trying to – you know, use the internet to do sales through the store so I can keep our staff on board. But uh, we only have about five people, but it's it's sometimes very hard if you work on a month-to-month budget to really uh, do that. But we're holding it together, and we have lots of friends out there, and, and I want to uh, do a shout-out to everybody that keeps supporting the museum by buying autographed books and, and sending in donations. It's very helpful, and uh, the museum is my legacy. It will live on way beyond me, and I'm very, very proud of it. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, uh, we, we've talked about this before. People, uh, they say, for all the people listening who are like, oh, this is on my bucket list, uh, you know, if you can get there now, as Lauren was saying, it sounds like a pretty good time to go up and check out Portland. Uh, and when things cool down a little bit with the country and people can travel again, if you're listening to this, out in the West Coast or uh, in the Midwest or down in Australia, uh, you know, cross that off your bucket list. Come to uh, come to Portland and check out the museum. I can't recommend it enough. I still have the T-shirt that uh, that I, I I was at the the opening of the very original museum that was in the back of the a, Green Hand bookstore. I still have the yeah, doesn't do you, fit me anymore, but I still have the shirt. <laughs> do you have the grand grand opening T-shirt? Yes, I do. That is worth a lot of money. Excellent. (laughs) You should take a picture for me and send it to me. I'd like to put it, since we're doing a grand reopening. All right, I'll take it out. I'll see where, uh, it's it's around here somewhere. I'm pretty sure I can find it. This is a good time because the crowds are so low, the traffic is so low, uh, 
people are finding it's a very good time to start coming out. Uh, and, you know, and we're very safe, of course, with all of the hand sanitizers all over and the door open and the fans on and all of that stuff. So we have to keep be careful and be safe. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And what about any uh, books or anything that people can uh, be on the lookout for? Oh, we're um, publishing the Merbeans book this year. That's uh, pretty exciting. Merbeans. Uh, and then uh, uh, we uh, just uh, are carrying the book uh, by uh, David Gladsworth, uh, who, which is called uh, Sea Sand, no, Sun, Sand, and Sea Serpents. Right. And that's a, a new book, especially in the, the Florida area of uh, all the sea serpent reports and the other cryptids. And we've got... Uh, the, I did the uh, introduction to that, so I've signed it, and he signed it, and we're selling exclusively the the dual signed uh, book uh, books there. So excellent. We should go to our uh, go to the website and then go to the crypto store, and there's all kinds of special things there with autographs they can't find anyplace else in the world. Yeah, I was browsing through it. It's pretty awesome, folks. So help out Lauren, help out the museum. Go there and check it out and buy some stuff. I'm going to go up there, I hope, in a couple of weeks and uh, and then see the part, be a part of the grand reopening. I guess we can we can keep it going through a couple of, <laughs> a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think a, a grand reopening around the 4th of July weekend will be a big event. Excellent. We can't Excellent. watch baseball. We can't watch baseball, but we can look at cryptozoology, right? I really hope they were going to come back with baseball at least on July 4th. So it's looking – I don't even know if we'll even see any baseball this year. So. Yeah, that's – that's depressing, but maybe there's hope. Maybe there's hope. Exactly, exactly. There's hope for baseball. There's hope for Bigfoot. Uh, and there's hope for Banal America. There you go, with the uh, Summer of Strangeness yes. kicking off tonight. Congratulations with your, your Summer of Weirdness. Yeah, it's kind of like a grand reopening for me. So, it's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we, got, we have a theme going here. Well, Lauren, I can't thank you enough. I really do appreciate you uh, joining me here tonight. I uh, appreciate all the time you've given me. And really uh, – it was funny. I was thinking about this the other day because uh, I was really friendly with Stan and really friendly with Jim uh, Mars, and, and I'm friendly with a lot of people in the paranormal. It's like, but I really don't. I wouldn't say there's too many people I would call a mentor. But then I think back, and there's a lot of conversations I've had with you over the years where you've given me advice or, or made observations about this this strange world in which we we uh, exist of the paranormal and cryptozoological and esoteric. Let's use that esoteric. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say you're, you know, one of one of the big mentors in my career here because uh, I've followed uh, some of the advice. Maybe you unwittingly gave to me, you know, the times of observations as I said of uh, of this. So I can't thank you enough for all your support over the years. I really appreciate it. That's that's very nice of you to say, Tim. Thank you. I try to do those things unobtrusively, so maybe it happens. <laughs> <laughs> It definitely happened. I can't tell you. I've encountered many circumstances in my life, in this, in my career, in this field, where I've thought of uh, times I've thought of things you've said or or have said to me, you know, talking about this, and I'm like, no, oh, that that makes sense. That's kind of how Lauren Lauren said it. So I appreciate it, man. All right. Well, you can hang up. I guess I don't know if we we had some technical difficulties getting into the show. So you can I can't hang up on you because I have to say good night to the listeners. But you can feel free to. Uh, to check out. Have okay. a great night. Have a great weekend, okay. and congrats again on the reopening. Okay, and have a good June 24th. 
Take care. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to stay home that day. <laughs> Bye-bye. Good night. There you go, folks. That was Lauren Coleman here on the premiere of BOA's Summer of Strangeness. I uh, want to thank all the folks in the chat room for participating tonight. Chris Pinio, Jim Vujovic, Miriam Hamlet, Sasquara down under, and Zach Copley. Uh, and, oh, they're coming off on the thing. All right, we can keep going a little bit. Uh, yeah, so with that in mind, next week on the show, Tobias Wayland will be the guest. Uh he he runs Singular Fortian. He's on he's on uh, Twitter a lot. He's a good dude. I'm looking forward to talking to him. He runs Singular Fortian, uh, and he also wrote the book The Lake Michigan Mothman. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be talking about that. Talking about it'll probably be a lot of inside baseball talk because uh, he's a keen observer of the of the paranormal, as he likes to call it, industry. So we'll we'll be sure to talk about that. And uh, yeah, that'll be next week. And we'll be back to our normal time at 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. So 9 p.m. Eastern Time next week, June is it 12th? Yeah, June 12th. Uh, Tobias Wayland talking about Mothman, talking about ghosts, talking about I don't know if we're gonna be talking about ghosts. I, <laughs> I don't know. We'll be talking about Mothman and uh, creatures and uh, you know UFOs and ghosts. Yeah, he said he's done all that stuff. So. We'll we'll find out. Uh, we'll get into the mind of Tobias Whalen. That should be fun next week on Banal of America. And with that in mind, uh, I will uh, bid you all farewell for this week. Thank you all for listening. Uh, stay safe out there, everybody. And until next time, this is Tim Banal signing off.